Well, the theme uh, this year for our preaching ministry uh, is learning the way of Jesus. And today we get to start a, a brief little uh, New Year sermon series, I guess you could call it, called DNA, which will focus on our identity as a church uh, and our core values, which define who we are and what we're trying to do around Appleton Gospel Church. Now, our core values include inviting people to worship and connecting people in community, training people for ministry, and sending people on mission. And we talk about these four things, worship, community, ministry, and mission. We talk about them all the time. This isn't the first time, hopefully, if you've been around for more than five minutes, that you're hearing about these things. Uh, But we certainly need to come back regularly and revisit these things, remind ourselves of why these are our core values because they are so important. Worship, community, ministry, and mission at the most foundational level are the basic building blocks of the Christian life. When these values are are guided and empowered by our mission and vision as a church, which are rooted in the truth of God's word, they become our DNA encoding everything that we need for life and flourishing as a church. But also, if we miss or if we ignore one or more of these values, our lives will be out of balance, individually and as a church, and we'll miss out on a huge source of power and meaning and, frankly, joy in the way of Jesus. So today, we're starting a new year by looking back at some of the things that shape who we are. And we're starting with our first core value, which is inviting people to worship. And my goal here this morning is to remind you, if you have heard this before, that worship is always the right response to a real encounter with Jesus. When we see Jesus for who he truly is, we can't help but worship and invite others to do the same. Now, there are so many places that we could go in the Bible to see this in action, to see why this is true, and why this should be a part of our DNA as a church. But I think the story of Jesus walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14 is just one of the classic examples of this. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to Matthew chapter 14. We're starting with verse 22. Matthew 14, starting with verse 22. We'll put it up on the screens for you as well. Now first, we're going to read through this text as we often do, and then we'll go back and unpack it together, searching out what does this text mean and how do we apply this to our lives today. Matthew 14, starting with verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is God's word. So uh, the book of Matthew is, is the first and the longest of the four Gospels, or the four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible. And Matthew was a tax collector before he became a Christian, which means that he likely was very wealthy, but not well-liked in his life. But then he met Jesus, and he gave up a very lucrative career to follow him. As one of the 12 apostles, Matthew, also called Levi, was chosen by Jesus to be an eyewitness uh, to his life and ministry, ultimately culminating, of course, in his death and resurrection from the dead. Uh, and this testimony uh, is recorded for us here. So let's start back with verse 22 and work our way through this text together, okay? Verse 22, immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Okay, let's pause here briefly. So uh, in the passage immediately before this one, Matthew records the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this sequence of the feeding of the 5,000 and then walking on the water is the same in Mark and John's gospel accounts as well, which suggests to me that it's important to understand what this text means. Now, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 was actually 5,000 men, it says in the text. So there would have been actually many thousands of people, including women and children. And after a day like that, I would think Jesus would have been exhausted uh, even the biggest extroverts among us get worn out eventually. And so Jesus has his disciples get in a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee without him while he dismisses the crowd. But instead of just going to bed, Jesus decided to go up on a mountainside to pray. Now, Jesus was always doing this. If you read through the gospel accounts, he's always praying. Before every major event or every major decision in his life, uh, he would pray. But also... Times like this, just at the end of a long, busy day of ministry, Jesus would get off by himself and pray, spend time with his Father in heaven. He prayed so much and so differently than his disciples were used to that they asked him to teach them how to pray. And I find it very interesting that nowhere in the Gospels do we have the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to preach. But they did ask him to teach them how to pray. Prayer was at the heart of the person and work of Jesus. It filled him up. It restored him after a long day. And this is such a great reminder for us, especially coming into a new year. Prayer is powerful. Prayer restores and heals. And if Jesus needed to pray, so do we. Well, let's continue with verse 23. 
Later that night, he was there alone up on the mountainside praying, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, Matthew says, very nonchalantly, walking on the lake. Oh, of course. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So Jesus is praying, but the disciples are struggling. Now that might actually be a good picture for some of us today. Jesus is alive. He has been resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven after giving many convincing proofs that he was alive again. And today he is interceding for us as our great high priest, praying for us today in heaven. Jesus is still praying. And some of us are still struggling. Now maybe you feel like you're being buffeted by the waves or the wind against you today. Maybe some of us are even starting to doubt whether or not God is there or if he is there, if he's good or if he even knows if he's paying attention to what is happening in our lives. Now maybe like Jesus with the disciples, God is waiting and letting us struggle for a time. But take courage, fear not. When the time is right, before all was lost, Jesus would go out to his disciples. He would come near. But he didn't come to them as they expected. He came walking on the water. And I just love that matter-of-fact description from Matthew of this scene. It was very late at night, literally the fourth watch of the night, which means this would have been somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., the disciples had been presumably paddling the whole time, all night. Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. But if you notice the reaction of the disciples, they didn't expect this. They were like, oh, Jesus, walking on the water, because people walk on the water all the time back in ancient times. <laughs> ancient people weren't foolish or stupid. Well, to correct that, they're as foolish and stupid as we are today. That's a, they're people live, who lived a long time ago, but they didn't expect it. They were terrified because these things don't happen. They must be seeing a ghost. That's the only thing that would make sense of this situation. But remember, these aren't children. The disciples were mostly blue-collar, hard-working men. Men who wouldn't easily be scared or wouldn't quickly believe in ghosts unless they were actually seeing something that they couldn't explain any other way. But Jesus comes to them and reassures them, it's me. Take courage, take heart. Do not be afraid. Now the statement in the Greek is similar to what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked for God's name and God told Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now here, Jesus, a human being, Matthew's friend, is doing things that only God can do, walking on the water, and he says things which only God can say. Take care, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. Well, how would the disciples respond? 
Look back at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, okay, strong faith, Peter. If that's you, Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Jesus invites him. Then Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why do you doubt? Oh, I don't know, Jesus. I've never done this before, have I? No. Well, here we just have one of the best pictures, uh, almost a living parable, really, of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus? I'll tell you. You have bold faith like Peter. Jesus, is that really you? Followed by seeing and experiencing miraculous works that only God could do. Oh my gosh, I'm walking on the water. Followed by sinking doubts, leading almost to death. <laughs> this is the Christian life, okay? You can say amen if you've experienced any of these things before. Followed by what? By Jesus reaching out and grabbing onto our hand and giving us the mercy and the grace and the truth and rescuing us for the 10,000th time. This is my story. This is your story in Christ. Jesus responds by reaching out his hand and catching Peter before he was completely overwhelmed by the waves. Emotionally overwhelmed? Certainly. Physically overwhelmed? Not quite yet. He caught Peter he calmed the storm and then calmed Peter. A mild, a gentle rebuke. I mean, you, why do you doubt? I, I picture Jesus doing this with a slight smile on his face. Not angry. I mean, Peter was pretty bold for a second. Now, Peter started out strong, climbing out of the boat, responding to the invitation of Jesus to come. Not to a place of safety, but to a place of risk. Climbing out of the boat, but he was going to be with Jesus. And that's the key. This is a man who trusted Jesus with his life. But then Matthew says, and I think this is also key, when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, when he started looking at his circumstances, he started looking at the wind, started feeling the wind probably, looking at the waves, thinking like, how deep does it get here in the Sea of Galilee? This is not a safe place for me to be. He was in the middle of a storm. He was in the middle of the sea. He was a professional fisherman, and he knew the risks. He would have known this was a terrible idea. So he went from bold faith to fear and doubt, just like that. But Jesus rescues him anyways. His rescue is not dependent on the faith of Peter. It's not about the strength of our faith that truly matters as disciples or as followers of Jesus. It is the object of our faith which makes all the difference. He is the one who is strong. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Go ahead and be weak. You will feel, you will experience, you will come to see the fullness of the power of my grace. You can have just a little bit of faith in Jesus and it will be enough. Not because of you, 
but because of him. Verse 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him just to let the sick touch the edge of his cloak. And all who were touched it, all who touched it were healed. <laughs> so this thus ends just an amazing encounter with Jesus. Actually, just a typical night, I think, with Jesus. Going from the feeding of the 5,000, calming the storm, walking on the water, and then going and just healing everybody who was sick. Now, this, this story, it, it does kind of seem to culminate, and the miracles start to pile up on each other with all of the healing. Jesus, he, this is just what life with Jesus looks like, though. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus and be with Jesus on a daily basis. Crazy things happen. People are healed. Relationships are reconciled. Amazing things that only God could do happen. But again, Jesus is doing things that only God can do. And he says things that only God could say. And all of this should drive us to the question, as it did for his first disciples, and ask, who is this man? Jesus might ask us today, who do you say that I am? Well, if Jesus is truly the Son of God, sent from heaven, God become Man, the word of God become flesh as we just celebrated at Christmas. Then he would, he would certainly be worthy of our worship. But if he were only a man, if he were simply a human being and who was maybe even a great teacher or a mighty prophet or just a really good friend, if you were Matthew or John or the others, well then worshiping him would be blasphemy for these Orthodox Jews. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. Egyptians, they were willing to worship human beings. Romans, they were willing to worship human beings. Generally, it would be a king or the emperor. But Jews knew that this was expressly forbidden. It would have been idolatry to worship Jesus unless he was truly the Son of God. The only explanation for this is that these men were convinced that he was, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us, that he was the Messiah, the Lord. Now, of course, at this point in their lives, they didn't have this fully developed Christology, or in other words, the theology of who the Christ is and what he would do and everything like that. His death on the cross, they didn't understand that at this point in history. His resurrection from the dead, total surprise when it happened to them, okay? So it was only later that they fully understood the reality, the, the full extent of who this Jesus was. But here, they had a real encounter with the power and the presence of God in the person of Jesus, and worship is always the right response to that. 
When we see Jesus, even today, when we see Jesus for who he truly is, we can't help but worship. We can't help but invite others to do the same as the disciples of Jesus did themselves. Hey, come and see. I think we found the Messiah. Come and see. I think that I found God. In Mark's gospel, Mark writes that the disciples were amazed and terrified when they saw Jesus. That also could be a good description of the life of following Jesus. Amazed and terrified. Okay, that could be the subtitle. Anyways, they were amazed and terrified when they saw Jesus walking on the water. For, Mark writes, they had not understood about the loaves meaning the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Mark says their hearts were hardened. In other words, they had already seen abundant evidence that Jesus was more than simply a human being, but they didn't get it yet. They didn't fully understand. And I think that this is a clue for us to be careful, a little warning for us to be careful even today in following the way of Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000 met the physical needs of the disciples. They were thankful but they, they didn't fall down in worship. When they were in the midst of the storm and Jesus came to them and saved them, that's when they worshiped. A lot of times we pray for material blessing or we pray for things, physical needs to be met in our lives. I don't think this is wrong at all. That's part of how Jesus taught his disciples, taught us how to pray. But in meeting our physical needs, we are mostly satisfied and perhaps thankful if we have the right attitude about it. But does it make us fall to our knees in worship? Nothing quite does it like remembering our salvation. Now again, maybe all this describes you today. You've seen and heard evidence of who Jesus is and maybe you've even experienced some of the power of what it is like to be near him, but you're not quite there yet in terms of discovering or believing what you've already seen. I think one of the reasons that Jesus did so many miracles was because it's so hard for us as human beings to put our faith in him. Even when we have direct evidence or an experience that God is real and active in our lives, we tend to turn to anything or anyone to try and explain it away. I think one reason for this is that if Jesus is God, then we actually have to listen to him and obey him and worship him and give our lives in service to him and he will correct some of what we want, some of what we believe, maybe even some of the things that we hold dear. And all of that is going to be very costly and disruptive to our desire to be the Lord of our lives and define for ourselves what is right or good or beautiful in the world. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, both explicitly and implicitly throughout the Gospels, then we must put down the idol we have made in our own image. We must take off our own self-made crowns and we must fall down at his feet and worship him and him alone. This is why worship is one of our core values. Worship is a reflection of the greatest commandment 
and the highest calling of God for human beings, which is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And worship is the only reasonable response to who Jesus is, if he is truly who he claimed to be. However, coming to a conviction in our hearts about who Jesus is, and even spending years worshiping and serving him as our Lord, our God, our King, our Christ, doesn't mean that we'll never again have doubts. Like Peter, there are days or seasons where we might take our eyes off of Jesus and start to sink. Looking more at the circumstances of our lives than to the Savior of our lives. Or like the disciples in the boat, we might have, we might have a truer confession of faith than we fully understand in the moment. We might say that we are worshiping Jesus and not totally have a good understanding of what that means or who he truly is. We could become confused or led astray about who God is or what God has done or what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. And so every Christian, and my friends, this includes every pastor or teacher or ministry leader, will have doubts from time to time as well as the accompanying fear who is always the companion of doubt. Now this is why Christians need to be invited to worship. Of course, non-Christians need to be invited to come and see who Jesus is and what he is all about. Because if the gospel is true, and of course we believe that it is true, then it is the only way to life and love and joy and peace. It's the only way to be reconciled with God the Father in heaven, and the world is lost without him. So we have a great responsibility to share this message of reconciliation with God in, in word, in deed, everywhere, with everybody. But again, Christians need this invitation too. In fact, we need it over and over because we are forgetful creatures who are fragile in faith and courage. We sink in doubts when we ought to walk boldly through any storm. So we will carry on our mission as a church of sharing good news. And we will put our fragile faith in the one who is our rock, a solid foundation, a strong tower that will not be shaken. And his name is Jesus. But as we do this, as we, as we do this together as a church, as we sing together and as we serve together and as we share together our lives as an offering of worship to Jesus, we will do so because he deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise of our lives. He ought to be our first priority. His kingdom ought to be our agenda. His way should be our way. This is our DNA. This is who we are, one of the aspects of who we are as a church in 2023 and forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us so many signs and teachings that help us understand who you are, what you have done for us, 
and all that you are, will do for us in the future because of your great love for us, your grace and mercy in our lives. Thank you for all of those things. We praise you. We worship you. And even as we are blessed by you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill us with your power. Give us a new song for us to sing in our lives of following Jesus. Wake up our souls that we might not become cold and shrunken, but we might become white hot with our passion and our faith that would propel our lives forward in worship the whole of our lives as a sacrifice or an offering of praise to you. Forgive us, Lord, when we make ourselves into the lords of our lives. What fools we can be sometimes. Help us, Father, in our doubt. Give us the faith. Give us the, the grace and the truth to restore some, some stability in our doubts, to keep us going, to lift us up, even as we sink slightly. And Father, at the end of the day, I pray that we would just continue to see and expand the imaginations that we have for who you are, what you have done, all that you have promised us, your goodness, your grace, your love, your wisdom, and that we would just be in awe of that, not just now, not just tomorrow, but all the days of our lives. God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.